Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for Episode 6. Thank you for listening. Please take a minute to rate and review our podcast. That helps get us attention and reach more listeners. Today's guest is podcaster, writer, producer, and actor Sandy Chang. She hosts Now in Color, a podcast that brings those who have been erased from history back to the forefront. Her writing can be found in Bustle, Pop Sugar, and Hyphen Magazine. Her work strives to champion marginalized communities, women of color, and accessible mental health resources. Her show, Imposters, is currently in pre-production and set for production once it is safe to do so. Today's episode is special. We have the usual conversation about art and finance. However, with the current Black Lives Matter protests going on across the world, we have a bonus episode in which Sandy and I discuss social justice. That is episode 6.1. So if you enjoyed the conversation with Sandy, be sure to check that episode out. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Sandy Chang, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here. Thank you for having me, Ethan. Um, I want to say that we're recording this on uh, May 27th, 2020. So we're still in the middle of the pandemic lockdown shutdown. Yes, we're still all rotting in our apartments. Can you give us a two minute recap of your life and how you got to where you are right now? Uh, I was born and raised in California, Southern California, Riverside, California. It used to be a not cool place to grow up, but I heard it's super cool now. So I'm a little jealous that I didn't get to experience that. I used to be, I guess, the nerds that like hung out in Borders, the bookstore that used to be a thing. (laughs) And then I moved to New York for college um, and studied psychology with a focus on human rights and moral psychology. Uh, graduated, felt like I don't know what's happening with the world. I graduated during like the recession too. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, you know what? I'll move to New York City. Started working at a series of tech startups because that was the rage back in the day. I don't know if it's still the rage to work at a tech startup. I think I th- I think so. I've never done it, but I, it seems like it's still the rage. It's not a good time. I didn't have a good time. <laughs> I worked at a lot of tech startups. <laughs> was not a good time. None of them became the next Facebook as they all hope to be. You know, I was always interested in comedy, always loved storytelling and writing um, because I was sort of like taking creative writing classes on in secret in college. So I did a lot of that. So when I came to New York City, I also took more writing classes and also did improv as you should at UCB. Uh, Was a total improv nerd and probably embarrassed all of my friends by forcing them to come to my basement performances. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then from there, uh, someone, I don't even remember who told me, uh, they were like, if you love improv, you would love acting school. I thought I was like, oh yeah, so I could get better at comedy. Um, And they're like, yeah, like, because improv is from the Meisner technique. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Sounds great. If it's comedy, I'm in. (laughs) Uh, Enrolled in a two-year conservatory for Meisner and it ended up being not comedy at all. It was like two years of crying and drama. (laughs) And I was like, I'm confused. I thought we were gonna do more games and like do more improv, but it was drama improv for two years of my life. And then I was like, oh, I actually really 
like this. And I kept doing it. And here I am. That's amazing. Okay, so wait, in undergrad, it was psychology and what was the other part of your degree? Um, yeah, psychology and like general, you could like focus on different sects of psychology. So I focused on um, moral psychology, which is kind of like the philosophy of morality, but with science backed based stuff to it. I'm like butchering it. That was so long ago. Um, and I was always interested in human rights and how we could like merge psychology and human rights together. But also on the side, I was taking so many creative writing classes and hoping psychology would somehow inform my creative writing too. I love, I do love acting, but I think like the industry is a little, it's, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't like waiting around and I don't like begging for space. I don't think anyone does, but I just think it's like a little behind. Is that the right word? I don't. That's one of the words. Yeah. There's many words. Yeah. It's just like kind of like too stuck in tradition. And I'm just like not that type of person. So I was just like, I don't want to wait around to for someone to say I can do art. I just want to do it myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because and th- this is a problematic I don't I don't know because I think it's worldwide, but I think it's definitely heightened in the United States of America because it's like money. The art that gets money tends to be the art that gets paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And so there's a ton of like good art and bad art that is it doesn't have money behind it or a name connected to it. So it like goes unnoticed. But if you want to make a living, you have to sort of follow the theater or the whatever that has money. That's such a tiny little bit of the storytelling out there. You like have to go to it because you have to make a living. Right. And it's also really hard when you're an artist. It's really hard to let go of the notion that it's not just art and it's not just storytelling. Like you were saying, it it is all about money and business and capitalism. And that's horrible. And that's also a reason why I'm like, I don't want to play this game. That's necessary game to play, but I just don't feel like, you know, doing all of that. Yeah. It's necessary and unnecessary because I mean, uh, the problem with it being tied to money is who has that money? Like whose money is that? And in the United States, it's old white men who (laughs) have the money. And so that's like a a problem there. (laughs) Yes. A huge problem. (laughs) But on the flip side, be the change you want to be in the world. And I see what you're doing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Sandy is like doing things, doing different things. And she's not just like, I'm going to be a Broadway actress or I'm going to be a movie star, which which could be a way to go. Yeah. It's not like, it's not wrong if you're like, that's what I want to do. But it's just, yeah, not my style. I'm like, just not interested in hanging out with old white dudes all the time and adapting me. Did you see the Broadway show Tootsie? No, I actually haven't. Okay, don't. Well, first of all, it closed. Don't. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it is so painful from like an old white people telling the story, old white men telling the story. It's supposed to be like pro-woman and pro-feminist, but it's told way wrong. They like tell you the story of like, this is what we learned, guy pretending to be a woman, and then he learned things. But you don't actually see that take place on stage. Yeah, I'm glad I never heard of it. I actually, there's this guy whose name I don't even remember. I met him at some, have you heard of the place called The Players Club? It's like some elite theater club, I'm going to say. He came up to me because I was the only person of color in this room. And he was telling me about this, how he's not a racist because he directed this Broadway play. I'm going to say, I guess it was closed. And he was like, it wasn't yellow face per se. I looked it up and it was, it was like all white people dressed up in geisha clothing. It was just like so weird. 
And he kept being like, you know, like, cause there were a lot of Asian Americans protesting this. And I think he was like trying to get me to be like, no, you're not a racist. But I was like, sounds like yellow face. <laughs> okay. All right. So now that we know your background a little bit, let's learn about your creative personality. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Definitely theater. I'm a huge musical fan, actually. So I love any sort of musical theater. Probably not Tootsie, (laughs) according to you. Allegiance. Did you like Allegiance? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So I... I mean, it's not a secret. I actually worked uh, for that company that produced Allegiance. Oh. It wasn't great. (laughs) It wasn't a good time. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a good time. I'll just like leave it there. Um, I think the intention was good, but I think, I I don't know, people can't see my face. It's like a grimace. (laughs) I support the message. I support the cast. I support what they're trying to do. Yeah. So I like the message and everything, but yeah, the show was painful and atrocious. Yeah, I had to watch it like four times. Because I work there. <laughs> um, yeah, but... But Sandy, Sandy Cheng, you love musicals. I love musicals. Be the change you want to be in the world. Like, you write the next Allegiance 2.0. Oh, man. I'm not... But I'm not a musician. I'm bad with me. I just listen to it. For example, the latest one I lis- was, like, obsessed with was Town, And I, like bought myself a ticket because I was like, I love the show so much. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not a music. I feel like you would have to have like a level of like music in you. And I'm just not that person. I like go to karaoke and it's horrible. <laughs> One more little tangent before we get to the questions. Chong said to ask you about your TV series in the making. Oh, wow. <laughs> Imposters. Yes. Um, man, it's so sad. <laughs> it's like because we're in quarantine. Well, okay. So Imposters, I wrote and created it right after acting school. And it was actually because I just wanted to write a scene that I thought would be really funny. And it grew into this like massive undertaking. The reason I wrote it was because it was actually during, um, there were two things that happened. First, there was the whole affirmative action debate that came up once again, because I think Harvard was saying crazy things about Asian students and Asian students um, were saying that like, oh, a black student is taking my place, which is so wrong and not not correct at all because I don't want to speak for all Asian Americans, but I think for the most part, our community has sort of fallen into this model minority myth and trap into thinking that, you know, we just have to work really hard and be quiet and like not cause any ruckus and get into Harvard and our lives will be perfect after that. We will never have to worry. It was during that whole debate that came up. Um, and then also at the same time, the college admission scandal where Lori Laughlin and some other celebrities paid their kids way into college, which was not at all surprising for students of color. And as someone who went to a college that is an Ivy League, I guess that you could say for now, it's like not a surprise like that is that was always like, okay, this person got in because his father like donated a building or something crazy like that, where we could never just get in because of donating a building, you know? Um, So I thought it was really funny because it's it's funny that like, you know, you have to pay millions of dollars just to get your dumb kid into one of these so-called prestigious schools. But at the same time, it made me wonder like, why are, for example, Asian Americans like begging for space and begging to go into these historically white institutions? Like, what are we trying to say? Like, we're just pushing 
white supremacy forward, in my opinion. So that's the inspiration behind imposters. It's not really about, I mean, obviously there are nuances to being a person of color or a student of color in these high achieving academic uh, places. So yeah, I wrote the show and I was like, oh yeah, I'll like get some cameras and just shoot it and put it on YouTube. Um, But that like I formed a team and like I think everyone just wanted to put elevate it into more than just a YouTube channel. We worked so hard on it. We raised $45,000 on Kickstarter. Those 30 days were like the most dreadful, anxiety-ridden days ever of like, are we going to make it? Because Kickstarter is all or nothing. And then after raising money, we had all the intentions to start production in 2020. But then COVID-19 happened and we are currently on pause uh, until hopefully quarantine is lifted soon and when it's safe for everyone to Beyonce. Amazing. And so is it a comedy? It is a comedy. Yeah, I like said all these depressing stuff about it first, but it is a comedy. It's a comedy that follows students of color. And then it like talks about the politics and bureaucracy of academia because people don't tend to know that like a lot of the professors are totally burnt out and they're like on tenure and they just check out immediately. And I think there is a lot of comedy to that because I don't think we explore a lot of higher education and the nuances of higher education, but it's a really interesting place to be. Interesting as in there's a lot of just weird bureaucratic things that you would think doesn't matter in the real world. But it does, um, especially now with all this remote learning, there's all this talk that, you know, tech companies want to start disrupting college and disrupting the future of college and what college could look like to shift it all to online learning. And what would that be? Right. Because I feel like there was already a push to disrupt college, but not from like, let's do it remotely point of view, more like a, it's not really teaching us all the things we need to be taught. There should be like a thousand ways to do it, not like this specific for your plan because it's just not right for everybody and and you you could sort of learn like going to work for a company and taking a couple classes a year for three years and be better off than if you went to a four-year college or something yeah i completely agree i think college is a lot about the brand name and the status and upholding status quo and i'll just like keep harping on all of that too and institutional racism and sexism <laughs> yeah it's just the way it is like and it's through history it is this way it's like any any time you add bureaucracy or you add layers of complexity. So you're forced to make rules on how something can operate, like how a school can operate or how a company can operate. Once you add in rules, nothing is ever just black and white and easy like that. So inevitably, you just have to, it gets complex and then it's not good. (laughs) Yes. Your listeners are just like, why am I listening to the most depressing episode? Um, oh, wait, one more question about imposters. Um, you said you wanted it to be more than YouTube. Does that mean you're like going to put it on Netflix or Hulu or something? Did you say that? Uh, yes. So that was our plan um, to create this pilot and to then shop it to networks and things like that. But I just recently learned there is more than just like we shot a pilot. Come on, networks, buy our content um, again. A lot of politics, a lot of networking, a lot of I've created more pitch decks than I ever thought I would in my life. I assumed more of a business person role than I than an artist role, um, which was really hard. I think I mentioned this earlier. It was really hard to just like shed that part of myself and to be all business and to talk to potential investors about like, you know, this is when you can expect your money back, even though if you invest in film, TV and art, it's 
you're never gonna get it back i hope they don't listen to this um <laughs> yeah it's really hard for you to get it back yeah and to get like 20 percent more i think everybody needs to hear that because nicole and i we co-produced a christmas carol on broadway hopefully in the future we'll co-produce more things we're also like my friend matt webster i'm trying to produce his play and i think people need to know if i'm talking to them about investing that their money's not coming back to them <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the nature of this industry like like a broadway show okay you have a shot because like one in four shows recoups one in ten maybe actually makes money maybe (laughs) (laughs) but like an off-broadway show doesn't recoup period it's like two a year right um not counting like long-running ones like blue man group or whatever but that actually counts as the one or two a year from years ago so anyway like i want people to invest but you have to want to invest because you want to be involved you want to maybe win a tony award you want to maybe win a drama desk award you have to want to help ethan you like one of the actors in the show want to go to opening night so there's all these other reasons you want to have a show on netflix like you want to be like i produced imposters or i helped make that happen like sandy chang is so great i thought like I'm gonna help her so I think it's important that we say that you will not make your money back (laughs) yeah it's interesting because like I I've repeated those things I've said like it's it's high you know I maybe I like buried it in jargon like there's a lot of high risk it's like basically 99% risk these investors are just so gung-ho about like okay when can we expect a return on investment and I'm like I think I'm just like not looking I think when I I think I've learned that when I look for investors in the future it will have to be someone like you said who want to invest in Ethan rather than like, when am I going to get my money back? It's easy to project something like that for a product, like a tech product or something like that. Um, But you can't really predict that with a Netflix show or a Hulu show. And Netflix doesn't even release their data, really. So we don't really know how many people are streaming and how much people are getting back for every stream. Oh, boy, I thought that was that's good. I'm glad we talked about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. And the other thing is, like, say you're producing imposters, which you are, you could give them be like, oh, in three years, like you could say that to them. But you know that that would like be a lie. I know Nicole and I, we are very honest. And we're like, here's the story. We hope three years. Like, we hope two years. This is the plan. Five years. But we're very honest. And we would never, even though people send out like a recruitment schedule, and we do pass that along to investors, we never say it's guaranteed. Like, we always do what you say. We're like, probably not going to make it back. But if you do, it would be three years. Like, if you put money in this, you're never seeing it again But if you do, it'll be in five years. Like, it's no time soon. Right, exactly. Hopefully some investors listen to this and reconsider. And decide that they want to lose their money. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about you. Do you have a go-to book or resource for your art? I don't think I do. I read a lot of fiction. Recently, I've been really interested in creative nonfiction too. So like memoir writing. And I feel like I don't go for like handbooks of like, this is how to be an improviser or something like that. I'm more interested in just drawing inspiration and like filling up my creative well, I guess, with fiction and writers and things like that. So I don't think I have one in particular. But one book that did stick out with me, which is like super cheesy, but it's um, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. She famously wrote Eat, Pray, Love and, you know, went on a journey to India (laughs) as a privileged white woman. But um, I really appreciated Big Magic because she sort of like dismantled this notion of like a suffering artist, which I also never believed in because obviously I wanted to always just 
do comedy and lighthearted things. Um, but I do feel like a lot of artists put so much pressure on themselves to be a certain way. And I think there's like all this weird glamour with suffering in art. And I'm like, why? There shouldn't be. It should be exciting and magical and fun. And I am going to blame people like Daniel Day-Lewis, a great actor, but people who like sort of glorified method acting, I will say, who like lock themselves up in hotel rooms and do crazy things. Like what's his name? Jared Leto? Jay Leto? Yeah, Jared Leto. The guy who played the Joker, um, where he sent his castmates like dead pigs or like bullets and just like crazy things where I'm like you don't have to do that it's just acting at the end of the day it's not you're not solving world hunger you're not doing brain surgery it's just acting so I don't believe in like the suffering in art like yes like dig deep and like personalize it and things like that but I don't really believe you have to be morbid and depressed 24 7 to make great art so I will say big magic is like a good resource for artists out there is it geared toward actors or just all artists uh no it's it's all artists um um she talks mostly about writers because she is a writer so the whole notion is that art is a sort of magic and if like you feel like a story is calling to you that's because the story is like coming from the universe to use you as the vessel to tell its story so it could be for anything okay what music do you listen to i don't know i think recently i'm into like quiet lo-fi or hip-hop like just like anything that's like a bit quieter I don't know if it's just because I'm tired and old or something (laughs) any music that tells a good story I'm really interested in it's like indie pop indie folk it goes into that genre it's always usually very sad for some reason I'm like really into just feeling my feelings and pretending I'm going through a breakup every day but when I'm in a good mood I feel like I tend to gravitate towards hip-hop but usually I'm like in this weird indie pop folk genre cool what are some of your hobbies oh wow um podcasting is a hobby yeah um cooking for sure I love cooking, although in this quarantine, I've grown sick of my cooking and I would just love to sit at a restaurant. Um, Yeah, definitely cooking. I'm trying to think, what else do I do? I love traveling. Is that a hobby? Is traveling considered a hobby? Traveling? Yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. So travel. I wish I had more time to do it. Every single person on this podcast has somewhere along the line mentioned they love to travel. Yeah. Love traveling. So cooking, traveling, anything where I can experience a new culture or just learn something new. I feel like when I'm in one place for too long, I I become more narrow minded and I don't really like that. So I try to travel as much as I can when I can. Nice. Okay. Can you describe your demographics for us? Okay. So race, Chinese American, Asian American, age, I'm 29, turning 30 soon. Thirty, flirty, and thriving. <laughs> <laughs> Education. I have a bachelor's from Cornell. Gender. I identify as she and her <laughs> relationship. I am engaged currently. We're supposed to get married in August, but that has been canceled. In New York? Actually, in Iceland. It was supposed to be a little destination elopement, but we've postponed it to hopefully next year. Hopefully next year things will 
not be so crazy. Iceland. Does that mean you just like get married at the courthouse here and then go have a ceremony in Iceland? Um, so we would have to bring certain paperwork to Iceland. And then I think someone official in Iceland has to approve of it. And we have to like prove we were not currently married and give them our passports and our plane tickets and things like that. Um, yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. Enjoy. Congratulations. And it'll be great. I hope so. 2021. <laughs> Because 2020 has been a garbage year so far. Yes, yes. Are you bad with money or are you a money wizard? I would say I am in between. Maybe I'm like mediocre with money. Is that an option? Yeah, I think I'm just like mediocre. Like I try my best, but sometimes I could have made better life decisions. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, Are you a saver or a spender? I'm definitely a spender. But on like stupid things, not stupid, it's not stupid. It's just like, I think I want to travel (laughs) and I like put it on a credit card or something. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'll pay this off. And then it's like, oh shit, I just spent a thousand dollars to go to Norway for whatever reason. And I'm unemployed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you risk averse or a risk taker? Definitely a risk taker to a fault. (laughs) All right. Okay. Do you have a go-to book or resource uh, regarding finances? I feel like I should, but I don't. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, you don't have to. I actually, you're the first person I've ever asked that question. I just decided to add that question. Yeah, I don't. Um, my fiance is really good with money and he's really into cryptocurrency. I feel like I should understand it by now, but I, and I'm still like, I don't quite get it, but I'm, it's like, it's the point where it's too late to ask like what's happening (laughs) no it's not too late it's the wave of the future eventually in my utopia we'll have cryptocurrency and in his as well (laughs) but not because like i want it i don't care having paper that erodes is just not logical and having coins that are heavy it's just not feasible yeah i mean i even see stores around brooklyn who accept cryptocurrency so it's coming i avoid it 10 years ago it's older than 10 years i think but like whenever bitcoin was out and you can buy it on an exchange. I guess that was only like two years ago. People are like, oh, Ethan, you should do it. You talk about money a lot. (laughs) But I've avoided it, even though I acknowledge that it's a good thing and I think it will be great. I don't have the brain power to want to focus on it. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it it is. He's always reading about it. He's always watching YouTube videos about it. It's like literally constant, like every single day. And I'm like, I don't don't get it. (laughs) Okay. He didn't ask for a recommendation, but there's a podcast called The Investor's Podcast. We study billionaires. Mm -hmm. They have a couple episodes on cryptocurrencies that are just really good. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll listen to it too. They're maybe now like five years old. So maybe it's all old news, (laughs) but it's interesting. Talks about the history of it. Um, growing up, did you have a good financial example? Um, I would say no. I feel like money was always like an issue growing up and like always on the forefront of everyone's minds. So it's like there was always like financial anxiety. So I would say no, which I think is why I'm so like anxious when it comes to finances too. Yeah. What jobs did your parents have? Did they have steady jobs or were they freelancers? Um, definitely not steady. I feel like it's And I hate to say it in this way, but more of like the typical immigrant story of like thinking there's more opportunity in this mystical land of America and then reality it sets in. So more of like odd jobs, I want to say. But there was a period where my dad owned a computer store in New York City, actually. We're from California, but it didn't do so well. And then right after 9-11, that shut down and then 
since then it was just like always very rocky wait okay so you're from california but did your parents live in new york at any point um my dad lived in new york so he was like back and forth between california and new york and i'm not quite sure why the company existed in new york and not California, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I just remember he was in New York City. I would visit sometimes and he would, you know, be in California for a few months and then fly back to manage his store. And then after 9-11, he was just always in California. Okay. At the start of your career, what did your finances look like? It was actually okay uh, because I graduated college and I got an internship at this tech startup right away. And well, it was unpaid. They paid for my MTA. <laughs> And then I quickly got a job that I don't think I should have gotten because I was so underqualified for it at another tech company. Um, So it was actually okay. I don't think I really struggled until like maybe in my mid 20s where, you know, after a failed startup, I was just like unemployed for a little bit fun employed. And that's when I was like, I'm going to go to Norway for no reason (laughs) and go into debt. Uh, Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think in the beginning it was okay. And it was like more of like a linear corporate trajectory. And then when I started getting more into improv and acting and the arts, that's when it started getting not as linear. Yeah. Was there an event that's happened in your life that shaped your view of money? I would say when my dad's company or store closed that's when I became more aware of our finances and I was only like 10 or 11 so financial anxiety became like a daily part of my I think teen years even in college too I was very aware of my socioeconomic standing as compared to my cohort whenever my junior year was uh I think it was a few years after the 2008 financial crisis. And then we actually lost our home during the housing crash in California. That definitely shaped, because then all of a sudden I had nowhere to go home to, whereas people during winter break, fall break, they just like go home. For me, it was just like so jarring and also so devastating. But also I started to realize, oh, not everyone has this has this experience. And I remember I told my boyfriend at the time, about this and he was so like not there that he was like I don't understand why can't you guys just buy another house I'm like confused (laughs) so it was just like that's like where they were at and like not their fault that they grew up in that sort of wealth where you don't have to worry about money but that's when I really started to realize like oh like this is not a normal childhood or normal whatever that means to grow up to like be so aware of your parents finances all the time wow you sound like you had a nice cohort it sound like people that like would be good to hang around (laughs) (laughs) just from a money standpoint i do feel like the downside of going to that school and like i always feel like i didn't have a great experience was that i felt like a lot of them weren't the critical thinkers that i had envisioned that would happen in an academic institution like that. And it was just more like, because they have the wealth and privilege, they can attend the school and they've attended great private boarding schools and private high schools to get them to here. So yeah, it was very interesting to be like, oh, it's not normal, I guess, to lose a home (laughs) during the housing crisis. Although in a sense it was because so many people did. Right, exactly. Hundreds of thousands, I think. Yeah, I don't know the numbers, but it it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you think about or worry about money on a daily basis? I think I used to. 
and then now I don't as much like I guess I think about like am I ever going to own a house but then I'm like why do I need to own a house so I think about it in that term in those terms of like is it just material possessions I'm worried about or like what is it right interesting when you have excess money where do you put it uh well it used to be in travel and stupid things like that uh you know experiences I'm like super I was like super into just traveling but also when I wasn't traveling just going out and being like a crazy partier I was really into partying in my earlier 20s and now I'm like I wish I was better (laughs) so I didn't spend like all of my money in one night on a club or something but now savings now I put in savings (laughs) nice nice um throughout your life have you used a budget no i've been bad about it no i hope no one i hope my fiance doesn't listen to this and he's like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) i would assume he would know by now yeah he did lecture me um a few weeks ago and maybe we'll get to this but of for kickstarter uh you are taxed on that money not just magical free money and like i knew that but i was like i didn't even think about it because i was like we're just gonna use it and it will be it will be fine uh because all of it is going to production no one is getting paid and you know he was just like you know when we get married your debt becomes my debt and i'm like it's fine. I'm going to pay my debt. It's going to be okay. <laughs> That's funny. I think I have a budget in my mind and I'm just like, I just need to translate that to an Excel spreadsheet. Some people are just like so good about like the envelope method or whatever. And I'm like, who has the time? Who has all those envelopes? <laughs> That, that's like a nice idea in theory, like da, 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 my perfect utopia. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. And then you start doing it and you're like, this is a waste of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to knock anybody who's using that method method because it is what it does do is it makes you focus on money and think about money. And if you're doing that, you're going to be better off regarding money. So it is actually a good thing. But also, no. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what fantastic financial decision have you made? And then conversely, what terrible financial decision have you made okay i think there's two two things i will count all of my travel decisions as fantastic even if i couldn't pay it off in time or something um and i will also put the acting school in that category as well the downside of going to acting school was i put it i was like oh, well, I'm also working so I can like slowly pay it off or I can like put it on these credit cards. And then I was like, oh, wait, credit cards garner like a billion percent interest. And now I'm still paying off acting school. So yeah, I think that was like the lack of foresight of like not understanding interest rates and being like a credit card will solve it to pay off acting school so yeah that was the bad financial decision that i wish i could go back and be like don't put any large sum on a credit card unless you're sure you can pay it off like the next month oh i'm so glad you said that that's such good that's that's great (laughs) where did you go to acting school Uh, i went to the maggie flanagan studio in new york it's the meisner studio there's there's so many of them yeah There are. And I think some sell the American dream to people who are not from this country. They serve a purpose, but also sometimes I'm like, I think they're taking advantage of people. I would agree with that because I, in acting school, I remember the teachers would talk about like how they would kind of glorify going into debt. And I always disagreed with it. But, you know, actors are, I mean, I'm an actor, so I can 
maybe throw some shade. Actors are very vulnerable people. That's there's a reason why they tend to believe in cults like immediately <laughs> and like join cults. But yeah, I felt like they were preying a little bit on that vulnerability of like, if you really want this, if you really want to become an actor, then you should have no problem going into debt because in a sense, they're sort of saying that you are, you become your own business and like you're selling yourself. But in the end, like when you go into debt, like you will become much more stressed out and like you can't have so much creative output or inspiration because you're worried about like all of this growing debt because there's always going to be an interest rate attached to it so yeah and that's something that's happened during the pandemic is they came out with the ppp thing that i was you know i wasn't sure you know can i get unemployment can i so i look into these things and yeah the ppp is great people are like oh it's a forgivable loan and it's like well no it's ten thousand dollars of it is forgivable if you're using it to pay employees but if your business of your own like a designer or an actor or an artist you're not paying that to your payroll so aka you're not eligible for that forgiveness and then okay well it's still a loan so it's a low interest rate loan so you could be like so people are like oh that's a good thing and it's like okay that is good like low interest money but there's still interest so even interest at like one or two percent is still interest you have to be wary of like going into debt if you can avoid it please avoid it (laughs) yeah it's it's bad being in debt. It's a, for, sometimes it's a lifetime of debt. Do you have an entity, uh, an LLC or anything like that? Or do you just get paychecks to you, Sandy Cheng? Um, so I do have one. I have an LLC for imposters. Um, and that was solely for the Kickstarter and for any production expenses. I wish I knew more about LLCs, but I just knew that was a good thing to do. So I wouldn't be liable for any like production accidents or things like that if someone got injured on set when did you open it like how long have you been working on this last year last summer actually so it's been a year but you then have to file taxes for that llc did you is that like a single member pass through for you or did you have to get an accountant to sort of do the taxes yeah so i i definitely learned the hard way i was like taxes were due for llc's in march and i was like oh, everything's delayed till July. And it wasn't until I personally was like, I should do my individual taxes. And I hired a CPA. I had received a 1099K from Kickstarter. And then they were like, you're liable, Sandy Chang, for like a billion dollars in taxes. And I was like, wait, what happened? So it's been such a huge learning process of like, of course, I'm going to hire a CPA to do this and an expert. I'm not going to figure out taxes by myself. It is a multi-member LLC. So we're currently in the process of figuring out like who gets issued like a K-1 and like why and like, is there a way for us to defer these taxes until next year when we actually go into production? Because it's just hasn't been used. And it was the whole purpose was for equipment and production and like I'm not getting paid and the director is not getting paid. I mean, these are people who all should get paid in theory, but we're all basically working for free. But worst case scenario, you can pay the taxes using that money, right? And then your budget is just smaller, like worst case scenario. Yeah, that's the worst case scenario. But we already have a tight budget. I think it's like the thing with um, TV and film is like you're always underestimating how much you actually need. Well, yeah, you estimate the appropriate amount, but then you realize that you don't have that amount. So then you cut back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not like people are dumb and it's always like, don't they know it costs more? Well, yes, they do know that, but they don't have that amount. 
Exactly. How much of your income is W-2 versus 1099? You're like a writer, an actress, a uh, producer. Uh, I would say most of it is W-2 now um, because even... You know, before I was working in tech and uh, even when I was in acting school, I was freelancing at tech companies and doing the same things that I was doing in these like corporations. Last year, I decided to go full time again at an agency because I was like, well, I'm engaged. I should say for a wedding, I should not just think that money is going to appear out of the sky and pay for my wedding in Iceland which is actually cheaper than a wedding in the U.S., believe it or not, because they don't value weddings like the U.S. do. Um, And at the time, I basically poured a lot of my own money into imposters because we were just like, we're just going to shoot this. And like when it's done, we can figure it out, which is, I think, probably also lacking foresight. But again, accepted a full time gig and it's it was always remote. So COVID actually didn't change much of my setup either. I've always worked remotely. That's where I make my money. And I do. I still freelance here and there too for people who need it. Okay. So when you said you went full time with an agency. An ad agency. An ad. So you're writing like ads. Yeah. Writing ads, but now moving a lot towards I don't know what the right term is, but it's like a lot of analytics and like optimizing for the best sort of ads based on spreadsheets upon spreadsheets and large budgets that I wish I had. So we already answered this question, which is, do you file your own taxes? Have you hired somebody like since you've been out of college? Have you ever done them yourself? I mean, I did TurboTax because that's pretty easy, but I find... So I think this would be my first year using a CPA just because I was like, I don't... I think before I was just like CPAs cost so much money and I don't understand if TurboTax is like a hundred bucks, why would I pay like 500 for a CPA? Now I'm seeing the benefit of it because I had been freelancing for a while and I had received a lot of 1099 miscellaneous forms. I didn't realize there's so much you can write off in your taxes if you're a freelancer or a contract worker. For example, doing podcasting, I was able to write off like my microphone and like Adobe Audition and things like that and software that I've used. When the CPA sent me a form, they even asked me to like measure the square footage of where I work, like in my home. And these are all things that I was like, oh, I didn't know you can write this off and you can write off the food you eat while you're working. And I'm like, I thought that was just not a part of taxes. Like taxes are so crazy to me. I don't quite understand them. Um, So I do think there is a lot of benefit to hiring a CPA because you do get more on your refund. Okay. Do you have a retirement plan? And if so, what does it look like? I don't know if it's a plan, but I do have 401. Okay. And I know this is bad as I'm saying this out loud, because I know my fiance has lectured me about this. (laughs) Multiple people will after I say that. So I have multiple, I think three 401ks from different companies, and I've never consolidated them because I just didn't understand why. And I still kind of don't understand why, but I guess like you, it's bad to have multiple 401ks. And I'm hoping after this, after this pandemic, I will then consolidate it because I don't think now is the right time because I'm assuming everything is at like two cents or something like that. So that that's my retirement plan is my 401ks, which yeah, I think a few days ago, someone said they don't work or something like 401ks are still a theory that's not proven. I didn't quite understand that either. So. That's whole. I'm not I'm not going to address that. That could be a whole other podcast. 
<laughs> I would have to know the context and they do have points. Oh, God. OK, so now I'm like, oh, no, I really didn't have a, a retirement. plan. I thought I was like, yeah, that is the American today, the American now. That's the retirement method. You're, you're spot on for that. That's good. I don't I know nothing about I've never had the problem of three 401ks. I would think, though, that you could consolidate now, even with everything being tanked low. I don't think that would matter necessarily. Talk to your boyfriend about that, though, or somebody that knows more because <laughs> don't don't listen to me. But I would think you could do it now. It's not going to make that huge of a difference as to if, if the stock market goes up more. The only thing that's bad about having three instead of one is that you're you're probably paying three times the fees. Okay. If you consolidated, you would just only be paying one fee. Yes, that's exactly what he said. My recommendation that you didn't ask for, find two of them, your least favorite two, and just figure out what form you have to fill out to get them to roll over to the one that you're going to keep. Right. Yeah, I need to do that. <laughs> and just do it. Like, just do it, get it over with. And then you'll have less paperwork to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it goes back to the financial anxiety of just like, I'm sure it takes like two seconds to do it. And I've just kept delaying it and being like, oh, I'll do it some other time. It will only sort of take two seconds, but the reality is it will take you half an hour. 401ks are this complicated thing where it's your money saving for you, but like you can't access it and you can't touch it. Mm -hmm. It's not a made up anxiety on your part. It's like you have to actually actively go and find out, okay, where is the form? Or you have to contact somebody like, where is the form? Help me fill out the form. And that's a lot of work on your part. And like, that's the problem with 401k. The purpose is you're putting aside money for your future. So in that sense, you don't want to touch it. And legally you can't or you get penalized. Somehow it has become like just impossible because you have to be in this conglomerate where somebody else controls all the decisions. So it's not just as easily as logging on and being like, oh yeah, let me just combine these three your emotions about it are very valid and true okay good good <laughs> i'm glad and another recommendation i'll make which is not a real recommendation you do you i don't know about your 401ks but if you think like if if say say none of those 401ks are from companies you still work for, you could potentially open up your own 401k and roll all three into a new one that you control, regardless of what company you will then work for. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. I've heard Vanguard is really good. Everyone talks about Vanguard these days. Hopefully we'll get a sponsorship from them after I give them a shout out here. Yeah, thank you. Well, episode three of this podcast, we give them a big old shout out. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, great. So they have to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, outside of retirement, do you invest in anything? Um, no, and I feel like I should. Like literally all of my friends are talking about investing in like Peloton and I'm like, I don't even know how to access that or like robin hood everyone tells me to sign up for robin hood and they're like use my sign up code and then i'll get a hundred dollars to invest in pelotons or whatever dish soap okay i'll send you my code <laughs> <laughs> but i won't get a hundred dollars i'll get like four dollars and you'll get like four dollars too oh, nice. but you should totally do it because that's four dollars i didn't have right now <laughs> exactly all right. Well, I need to look into like, I th I do think this pandemic made me think about like investing more because everyone is like, oh, then afterwards I'll have money. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Um, I mean, I would argue before Robinhood because Robinhood is a brokerage account. You have access to the money anytime you want. Mm -hmm. I encourage people to sign up for Roth IRAs. Those are retirement accounts that you can put $6,000 into every year, but you can't access it until you're 63 or... 65, yeah. something like that. But I would do that before I do the Robin Hood because the Robin Hood to me is just like a game. Yeah, that gives me anxiety. I can't even like 
go to the penny slots in Vegas without thinking I've just lost a lot of (laughs) money. Okay, so which job of yours has been the most financially lucrative? I think it was the education technology company I worked for in the beginning because it was like pretty chill, pretty stable, just like straightforward. (laughs) And I felt like it was like a straightforward path of like, this is the usual corporate ladder of like, oh, it's your six month review. You get a raise. Hooray. And there wasn't much politics I had to play. But like, obviously, when you're just out of college, you want something more exciting and fun. So I think I did not appreciate that, like quiet leveling up. I'd wanted more some fanfare. And that was a mistake. You're you're a risk taker. Yeah, exactly. It's not a mistake. <laughs> uh, do your professional network and your personal support network, do those overlap? And what sort of roles have they played for you? It used to overlap. When I was younger, I feel like I was much more interested in like being friends with all of my coworkers or the people I work with. Now it's more separate. And I think it's because I've learned boundaries and I've learned that you should not always shit where you eat. Eat where you shit. What is the term for that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I've definitely made a lot of friends in these corporate jobs, but like I tend to separate my personal life with my professional life. And I mean, at first I wasn't doing so much of that with acting and writing and things like that. But even then I've started drawing boundaries between my creative life and personal life too, because at the end of the day, it is, it is a job. I'm like trying to do a job. And like, I found that like when I was combining the two, it just got really messy and emotional for and stressful for no real reason. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, in theater, I work with like teams of people and you inevitably, your personal and your professional intertwine. And I don't always like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I used to love that. I used to be like, I want to be friends with everyone. But now I'm like, it's okay to just go home at the end of the day and not talk to the same people you've been with for hours. And I think the people that I do like working with acknowledge that. Okay, we're off. See ya. No communication until we're at work again. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I think with actors too, it's just been like a little challenging because I, at least the actors I've interacted with, it seems like acting is like a very all or nothing thing for a lot of them. And I'm definitely not that type of person. So it's, it's hard to be friends with someone whose values you don't really like have in common with either of like, if it's not acting, then like my life is over. And I think that is so scary and problematic to think that way, because as a human, you should be multifaceted. And I mean, you, you can do whatever you want, but it'd be nice to be multifaceted and have interests outside of what is considered your work, which it's your job to be an actor. You know? How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? I think it's mostly hard work, but I hate that narrative of like, yeah, I think it is hard work, but I do think being at the right place at the right time as well. And like, I don't know, I think there is a bit of luck to it too, because I don't like that narrative of like, if you just work really hard, then you'll be sub- the American dream. Don't believe in it. The green light is not real, but uh, there is definitely a lot of hard work involved. Absolutely. <laughs> What is your financial goal for this year? I would like to save more money. Well, it was to save for the wedding. So now I'm like, I need to redefine my goals. Now I think it's like just getting to a place where I don't feel like I'm in a scarcity mindset or like I just feel comfortable. And that doesn't take a lot for me because I don't really spend that much buying things unless it's for travel and we can't travel right now. So yeah, I think having a good solid emergency fund which I did not have at the beginning of this pandemic, but thankfully with like just 
staying inside and not doing anything. It's been pretty easy to save coming up with an emergency fund in a case where something like this happens or worse. Nice. What is a personal goal for the year? Oh man, this is hard because I, I was getting married. <laughs> um, it was getting married and also finishing production for imposters. Um, so hopefully if things are safer and quarantine lifts, we can finish production by the end of this year. I am not going to like hold out too much hope on that because it doesn't seem like it's going too well. So I think for me, it's just like more of like, I don't know how to describe this, not like capturing more joy and being present because that's hard to do. And I feel like I'm trying to move away from toxic positivity. But I do think my goal is to be more present and to, yeah, I guess, yeah, be more present because I tend to be very like future thinking and being like, okay, well, as soon as imposters is done, like then I can continue on with my life of like have other goals. And I tend to think in those terms. And I don't think that is a very healthy mindset because life happens to you no matter what you do, no matter how much planning and budgeting (laughs) goes into it. You can't predict a pandemic, for example. So yeah, just to be more present and to cultivate more of an abundance mindset of like, there will be a time and place for imposters to happen or for the podcast to go somewhere. Yeah. Amazing. I like it. If money was not an issue, what would your life's goal be? Well, it would definitely be do more like film and TV productions and on my own terms. So I don't have to put together pitch decks and talk to people I don't necessarily enjoy talking to, (laughs) aka investors. Um, (laughs) I think I would just use that for as a vessel for more storytelling, more art, but also selfishly, I just want to travel and it'd be nice to not stay on a couch surfer's couch and maybe like stay in a nice hotel or something like that. So I think travel is still to this day, like just number one on my list because I just feel like you learn so much, not only about other people and how other people live, but about yourself and like what your capabilities are when you're don't know when you don't know the language when you don't know the culture and don't necessarily know where you're going to be next i mean i was definitely much more of a adventure traveler i just like go follow my heart i bring up norway because so i worked for this tech company that just suddenly and abruptly shut down it was like i came in on a monday morning and they were like we're having our all team meeting with all the offices in chicago toronto and things like that and the president of the north america company i guess came in and he was like yeah this just isn't working (laughs) it's just like not working so we're shutting down now at 10 a.m and literally the day after i just booked a flight to Norway and not just Oslo. I went to like the Arctic Circle because I was like, that sounds like fun. Never been there. And even on the bus, because you have to take a plane to Oslo and then take another plane to another town called Alta. And then you have to take like this three hour bus ride to the Arctic Circle. (laughs) And even as I was sitting there, because the sun sets at like 1 p.m. and it's just pitch black outside, I was thinking, like, you know, someone could murder me and just throw me into a fjord and no one could find me (laughs) um that sort of test of your capabilities and like what you're comfortable with is i think it says a lot about you as a person too yeah amazing what financial advice would you give yourself when you started out or would you give somebody that's starting right now oh i'm like not the right person to ask i feel like i'm horrible (laughs) i would just say to just yeah put away some money per month 
doesn't have to be like thousand dollars a month, just like a little bit and just have a savings somewhere. I think that's solid. That's just good, solid advice. Don't put it off. Doesn't matter if it's not a lot, just do it. Get in the habit. Yeah, it's a habit. It's a learning process. And also since I, I'm assuming it's mostly artists who listen to this podcast, um, don't believe that debt is glamorous because it's not. And don't don't fall into the struggling artist trap and narrative because it's not it's not cute anymore, guys. It's like a little just it's just sad. <laughs> like when people tell me they're broke, I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do with that. Right. Yeah. Like it's not cool. Like get unbroke. Yeah. At least try. Just And I, yeah, I just don't agree with that. And it goes back to the all or nothing mentality because life is not all or nothing. And to really confront the fact that there are going to be nuances and complexities in your life that you might not even account for and have nothing to do with your artistic career. And that's like why I have this podcast on talking about money with artists is because like so many people in my industry, like bosses I've had, colleagues I've had, a lot of them don't like talking about money. And I find it problematic because we can't ignore it. You can't like pretend it's not a thing because every year we have to file our taxes and every year we have to eat food every day and we have to pay our rent. But there are people my age and people who are like in 60s and 70s and 50s that like don't talk about it. And like sometimes I'll ask questions like on a design team in theater like I'll be the lighting designer and there's a sound designer and a set designer and whatever producers will all reach out to us separately to get our contracts I sometimes want to be like oh well should I ask for more money and I ask other designers like hey what did they offer you or what are you getting paid and they like won't tell me and I'm like well how we should all be getting the paid the same people need to talk about it avoiding it is not helpful yeah and I and I also think that like talking more about money will also help create more of a quality I guess in a way because like for example women are notoriously underpaid all the time it's because a lot of women are trained to not ask for more and not negotiate for raises and things like that and I think if we're much more well-versed in our finances then it will only help your career in the end even if it's not in corporate your artistic career and I think there's like this weird even when I was in acting school there was like this weird like notion of like oh if you were working in an office that was like you're dead and your soul is like has left your body and all of these like things um but it's really not that bad there's a law in the united states where you it's not illegal for people for employees to not talk about money like we are allowed to talk about money and nobody can can by law like say we can't talk about money just because legally you are allowed to talk about it still there's a lot of people who don't want you to talk about it that's frustrating because also it means a lot of people don't talk about it it's just not helpful getting to equality yeah for sure there is actually someone i want to introduce you to for this podcast she went viral last year because she paid off her student loans i think it was like something crazy like a hundred thousand dollars or more and she does talk about like how women should negotiate more for more raises and like the only reason she got to where she got to was because she was very vocal about her finances because like i don't have any solutions for anybody and i'm a terrible negotiator i have negotiated horrible contracts where people are like ethan why are you getting paid that little and i was like well i didn't know everybody else was getting paid more like i didn't know i was supposed to ask for like so i just feel like the conversation is important like i can't give you the solutions to it all but we have to talk about it and get comfortable talking about it yeah i agree okay so now some questions from my wife nicole Yay. and these are questions from a non-artist artist. <laughs> <laughs> 
Why do a majority of artists have zero savings or retirement savings? I do think it's because most artists are like fed this notion that it's like you're selling out or something like that if you have a savings or make money. I don't know. Again, I want to go back to like the whole narrative of being like a suffering, starving artist. I think so many people romanticize it and I don't find it romantic. I will also argue not to like make it into a race thing, but I will also argue that it is a form of privilege to want to go into this starving artist mindset because it's like, oh, I've never experienced that because, you know, I'll always have like a buffer of like going back to my parents' house or something and like hanging out for a little bit or my parents will pay for me. And it's just like, even the other day I was having a conversation with someone about filmmaking and a lot of, you know, young upstarts who are praised for their like indie films and they're in their twenties or something like that. The reality is they have, they've already had a head start because they had wealthy parents or they had some sort of generational wealth to help them and launch them into their career. Well, most of us don't have the privilege of that. So I will say it is like a combination of privilege and a combination of like romanticizing suffering. It's like, uh, what is that term? Where you go to like a third world country and you take pictures with starving children and put it on your Instagram. It's like poverty tourism. And the new one is like also a productivity porn, you know, better hustle during quarantine, even though people are dying and this is a crisis and there's no way that any person could have so much creative output during this time. Somebody gave an answer on this podcast about how out of the pandemic, because of the suffering, there would be all this great art emerging from it. I edited it out because I just couldn't deal with that answer. Yeah, I immediately made a face. I was just like, no, I think it's exploitive and shows a lack of humanity. I listened to a real estate podcast and they had a guy on named Grant Cardone. He is like what you're saying, like a hustler. I'm always hustling, hustling, hustling. Then there's another guy named Gary V. Oh my God. Gary V needs to stop. (laughs) He's a lot. Yeah. But both of them are like hustle, hustle, hustle. Great, great message to send. But then when you like push it to the extreme, it's like, calm down. We're humans. We live in a world of other humans. We need to build everybody up. I agree with what you're saying on that productivity porn, which I've never heard that phrase before, but I knew exactly what it meant. Yeah, a lot of artists fall into trap and it makes me not like hanging out with other artists. So it's like a shame, honestly. Well, it's a shame. But also let me say that it's taken me a while finding my group of artists who I work well with and who sort of work the way I do and who are kind and polite. And I hear what you're saying because I want to be like 99.9% of artists. I want nothing to deal with and I don't want to hang out with them. And I don't like working with them, even though I pretend like I do and I pretend we're all hunky-dory. But the reality is like, who no. <laughs> yeah. Me finding my people who aren't like make a big deal of like, oh, I'm living the artist life or blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't like that. Like, I just want you to do your art and, and be happy and I'll be happy for you. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, is now a good time for students to study art? I think it depends. I think it's always a good time to study art, but also it's okay to broaden your horizons. You don't have to just study art. Uh, I think you can be interested in other things that inform your art and that makes it exciting. I think it's okay to study art or just study something else and just be an art. It's okay to just have to have other interests, which a lot of artists don't 
have for some reason, and I don't understand that. Who's to say who's the great artist and who's not a great artist? But I find people I like working with or the artists I like always have other interests or always always have something else that like informed what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so New York or big cities have historically been artistic hubs. Um, with the economy all haywire now, should artists still move to big cities? Oh, that is hard. I feel like that's something I've been grappling with too, because I honestly truly love New York City so much, even though I call it my abusive boyfriend. (laughs) But there's really no other place like New York City. Um, Like there's so much art here, museums, theater, new art that comes out all the time and just so many, it's an international hub too. It's difficult. But like, I also want to say that like, you know, New York will always here it's not like it's going to like topple over tomorrow or something like that also i would encourage people to like you know maybe create art and create an artistic community elsewhere and make that city interesting as well that's not new york city because yeah there are times where i'm like would my life be better if i move somewhere with more space or if i move to copenhagen or something like that and centering it all around new york or la also brings up like the whole scarcity mindset too of being like oh there's not enough room for me and like there's so much competition and the world is huge we should create art everywhere are you in any unions am i no i don't think so i was in a tenants union <laughs> i highly support unions though I, i'm asking the union question from a financial viewpoint people that listen to this think i'm asking it to be political and i'm absolutely not but once again everybody on here is super pro union for reasons <laughs> and artists notoriously have to fend for themselves like you're not usually an artist in a team mm-hmm. and even when you are you're just still in it for yourself as part of that team yeah it protects you the worker so, so that's why i have the union question is unions help artists get paid more right exactly um okay final two questions we made it <laughs> Exciting, but this was such a fun conversation. (laughs) I agree. Um, What separates those who have an artistic career from those that stop or never get started? It's a lot of fear. It's like a theme in this episode. A lot of fear, a lot of, again, all or nothing mindsets of like, I'm either on Netflix tomorrow or I'm never pursuing acting again sort of mindsets. Um, which I've definitely heard before. And I've heard, you know, just from coming from acting, like I've heard a lot of actors say things like, you know, why would I be in a student film? And like, but it's still acting, like you're still doing the thing you love theoretically. And you're helping a young filmmaker come up who, I don't know, they might be the next Oscar winning director. Who knows that? And I think just like getting really distracted by social media and like the compare despair anxieties of like, well, I'm never going to be, I'm never going to have a million followers like Justin Bieber does. So what's the point in even trying? You should just create art just because it's part of your humanity and your voice also matters. Even if some people hate it, it's okay. I'm sure a lot of people hate me. <laughs> um, okay. One, one last question. Where can people find out more about you? You can follow me on Instagram. I am at Sandy Pants, S-A-N-D-I-E-P-A-N-T-S-S. I'm also on Twitter, which is also Sandy Pants without the extra S in the end. But I think if you want like a tamer version of me, probably follow me on Instagram where I don't post as much. And on Twitter, I just talk a lot of shit. So be careful. Yeah. And of course, the Now in Color podcast, which is like, I can't recommend it enough. It's just so, so good. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. Now in color. Uh, we are also, it's called now in color podcast on Instagram. So you could follow us there too. And anywhere you get podcasts, subscribe. And whoever used to produce the Charlie Rose show, if they want a reboot or a new version, hire Sandy Chang to just be the new Charlie Rose and have amazing interviews. I think there's a future there. Oh, that would be so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, Sandy, thank you so much for talking to us. Yes, thank you so much for having me and having such a fun conversation. There was definitely a lot of flow to it. I loved it. That was our interview with Sandy Chang. My financial takeaways were save something every month, avoid credit card debt and all debt, it isn't a bad idea to spend money on experiences, don't buy into the suffering artist's myth, having money or a lucrative side job is not selling out. That's it for today. Remember to check out our bonus episode 6.1 where Sandy and I discuss social justice. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.